Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. Well, the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. Dr. Joe Millions. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost to you. Welcome to The Penis Project. Today we're talking to Andy from Dunsborough. Andy, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Andy for nearly a year now. He, I did meet him through getting his prostate out, but after he had prostate cancer. However, I'm really impressed with Andy. He's a man who shows vulnerability and capability in spades, and he's suffered quite a lot of black holes in his lifetime, and we're going to talk about what he's used and the tools he's used and the way he's lived his life to come out of those holes and still manage to have a really great enjoyable, successful life. Hey, Andy. Hello, Melissa. Thank you for that introduction. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> so I read, uh, I was fortunate enough for you to share your memoir with me that you've written for your children and your grandchildren, which I think is a great idea and it's actually inspired me to do the same. I want to write one too now. Good. My kids, if they're listening to this, will be going, damn, we don't want to read it. <laughs> they don't have to read it until I'm dead, so that's okay. Um, so do you want to just give us a quick rundown? Now, in your memoir you've written, it's not very long, it's only like 58 pages or something and yep. you've talked about how you met your wife, which is a lovely story, and then your career and yep. what's happened there. So just give us a quick rundown of how all that's gone. Okay. Um, well, I think the uh, the memoirs themselves, or we'll call it a book, it's easier to say than memoirs. Yeah. Uh, I think the title is really um, says it all for me because it I called it Not for Quids mm-hmm. and... Um, I'm hoping that at least uh, some of the people listening will be old enough to know that the quid used to be uh, currency and there was an expression that said not for quids when you wouldn't sell anything for any money in the world and despite uh, the roller coaster of my life which has been peppered with fantastic highs and equally devastating lows, uh, I wouldn't trade it for quids. Mm. wouldn't swap it with anyone or for anything. It's been wonderful and continues to be wonderful. And the fact that it's a uh, a roller coaster is uh, uh, just uh, one of the um, the ways I enjoy or have lived my life and mm-hmm. will continue to. So I loved the – you dedicate the book or when you wrote it to your wife. Yes. Um, who you've been with for 50 years now. Yes. And um, – <laughs> It says here that you wouldn't have survived without her and like reading these memoirs, like she just sounds like an amazing woman. And she, you were really young when you met, weren't you? Uh, we, we were. We were very young. In fact, uh, 
when I first spotted her it was at school because this was early days Perth and uh, we both went to, uh, to Catholic schools for no particular reason but we did um, and she was in the girls' school and I was in the boys' school and of course in those days the boys' school and the girls' school were separated by a barbed wire fence about three metres high but that didn't stop us being able to see the netball or the boys being able to see the netball court <laughs> and I saw this babe playing netball when she was, uh, I think we were both 14 and I guess that was when I made up my mind. She was just smoking hot and I thought I'm going to take this girl, walk this girl to the bus stop and um, as the book says, eventually I plucked up the courage to do that. It took you a couple of years though, didn't it? It, it did, well, it, it did because I was up against some stiff opposition um, not the least of which was uh, my elder brother uh, <laughs> and the and and also the swimming champion at, at uh, my St Philip's school. Uh, so I was up against some competition, so I thought uh, and I wasn't doing real well because they were in those days they were red tag Levi boys, and i was I was King G's. King G's. Yeah. And also <laughs> you had quite a bad skin condition of eczema, didn't you? So that would have really affected not your, your self-confidence, I imagine, as a young child. It, it did. and uh, it, it did. I, I did have, Melissa had eczema and I guess that was the first of the, the black holes. Uh, and it wasn't just eczema. It was, it was awful, really, mm. really awful from baby onwards. So um, in my very, very young uh, years... Uh, I went through all sorts of amazing treatments for this eczema and it was debilitating. My whole body was covered with it. I couldn't walk properly. My feet mm. were always cracked. I was always bleeding. Yeah, I, rem- I read one part where you had to walk on the outsides of your soles just because the pain was so still bad. Do it. I can still do it. I can still walk on the outside <laughs> of my feet. I'm, I was, I'm surprised you don't walk like you've just got off a horse or something. <laughs> well, that's kind of what it looked like. <laughs> but I had to. That yeah. was the whole point. I had to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was difficult, you know, and there were times when um, – because I mean, there was no cortisone in those days. No. Very, very little was understood about eczema. And pretty well all the things that the very uh, well-meaning GPs at the time um, put forward were all, if anything, made matters worse. So I was the kid that bathed in potassium permanganate. I laughed my head off when I read that in the book you talk about that you were purple all the time. And I, so I just thought it brings a whole new meaning to racism, doesn't it, when the kids would call – what were they calling you? Purple head or something? something? Yeah, well, they did. They called me uh, – uh, in fact, it was, it was worse than that because – uh, I'm first generation Aussie, and of course this is this is um, late fifties, early sixties. So um, most of my um, most of the other kids were um, uh, parents of returned soldiers mm. from the Second World War, and of course I'm first generation from German parents. Mm. So there was all, oh, there was still then, but late fifties, early sixties, there was still a lot of resentment. Against Germans. Well, my grandfather was in a German prisoner of war camp, and I remember him. The things he used to say about the Germans, I can only imagine yep. what it must have been like growing up. So yeah. there I was, the Nazi and the purple Nazi. Yeah, the purple Nazi. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was fun. That was a bit uh, terrible. Yeah. And you still plucked up the courage to ask ask the hot netball chick out. I, d- I did. <laughs> I did. I, I uh, intercepted her uh, on the uh, on the gate after school because I knew she walked down to down to the bus stop and I knew where the bus stop was and I just thought, I'm going to do this, so I did. Um, and um, she will tell you the story to this day that uh, because I had just taken delivery 
of a new push bike, mm-hmm. which in those days had ten, which was had ten speed, and in those days that was that was up there, flash ten speed derailleur. So when I finally plucked up the courage to walk her down to the bus stop, I spent the entire time raving on about my ten speed derailleur. <laughs> And she will tell you to this day that nothing's changed. <laughs> You're still going on about bikes. So was that when your love affair also started with bikes? Because they're still a big part of your life now. Um, yes and no. It 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 uh, it was when the love the lo- the love affair started very very early with motorsport. Mm-hmm. Whether that was four wheeled or two wheeled. Mm-hmm. Initially four wheel rallying uh, and motor cars and like I was rebuilding engines when I was fifteen or sixteen years old. Right. And then I uh, started rallying when I was um, 16 as a co-driver on a special condition licence because I was so young and I'm still involved in motorsport as a matter of fact. Um, and you will, you do know, Melissa, that I um, have been known for the occasional sojourn, so here comes the first one. Yes. Uh, in May of this year, mm-hmm. uh, I will be celebrating exactly to the month 50 years since my first rally. Wow. I'm still an active competitor and I believe that that's probably the first rally competitor that spanned active competition for 50 years. Wow. So that'll be in Nanup uh, in May. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and again, co-driving. I've been driving for many, many years, but I've elected to co-drive because that's where I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got a young, very, very, very capable young driver from Nanup that's driving for me. So I'm looking forward to that. So there, sorry about this. That's all right. Where, where no, that's good. I've actually seen two patients today who also do rally cars. So well, there you go. There you go. So oh. they'll probably be very interested to read. So after you met your wife and then you just dated for about five years from what I can remember. Yep. And then you went off to university. She got a job as a clerical person yes. and then your career started you studied to be tell us about that I, yes indeed i um uh, i studied to be an engineer mm-hmm. specifically electrical uh, went on to do other forms of engineering and, and a few other um qualifications along the way but yes engineering particularly so technical mm-hmm. uh and um again just to emphasize what uh, how lucky i was with the beautiful beautiful lady that I met with my, my wife, now wife, uh, in fourth year, I decided that my project, engineering project, because we all had to do an engineering mm. project in fourth year, in fourth year, I decided that I'd build a racing car. I read that and so, I just thought, God, she's a tolerant woman. She, she funded it. I know. She, from her job <laughs> as a... Res- clerk. Yeah, I know, which is Telstra now, isn't it? Telstra now, yes. God, I was just so impressed with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we lived in a little flat. Uh, next to her, in her grandmother's house, and she funded the um, the racing car, which I built mm-hmm. uh, in my fourth year of uni. And, and sold it straight away. And sold it. <laughs> I, I raced it two or three times, but oh, then no. sold it. And that car still exists. It's still around. Mm. So, yeah, in fact, I know the guy that now owns it and it's still going strong. So yeah. it's great. Cool. Yeah. So yep. really, she just made a good investment in you because then you went on and you, so. you got a job in there. In there, what's worked out so far, hasn't it? Yeah, indeed, mm. indeed. Yeah, I got a job in government and I was there for 10 years. Uh, it was public works um, and as an engineer initially. Um, but that got pretty exciting towards the end because um, in those days it was the start of the government realising that public servant service was getting a bit unwieldy and so they asked for volunteers to be part of a reform process, I guess you'd call it, mm-hmm. and I volunteered to do that and that was my first real foray into business and business analysis uh, away from pure technical. Uh, so I was doing doing analysis of various business units within 
or functional units would be a better way to put it in the government, doing analysis of them and writing reports on perhaps how we could do it better with private contractors and all that sort of stuff. And that was also a toughening process for me because um, you start to threaten public servants with their careers by um, talking about private enterprise and uh, going out. It's not necessarily the most popular thing to do. So that was a toughening process for me. And did that... Did you have any black holes during that time, that 10 years? I mean, you had the birth of your three children. Yep. And then was life, I mean, obviously you're working hard, but was life good in those times or were there times where you felt a bit shaky ground? Um, they were actually weren't too bad. Yeah. You know, I still was uh, struggling with um, um, with the eczema mm-hmm. um, um, and that was, you know, that was sort of always there. Um, but generally, uh, in those early early years, uh, things were going pretty well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so much so that um, um, uh, that they became almost sort of halcyon times. And, and I remember distinctly thinking to myself on on many occasions, um, "This is great. What could be the worst thing that would happen?" And then it did. And then it did. Mm. Yeah. So tell us about that. What- yeah, well, so we're now we've gone um, we've wound forward a little bit, uh, and the kids are starting to grow up. Mm-hmm. We had three children: uh, oldest, a boy, and our only boy. So one uh, one son and two two beautiful daughters. Uh, and um, uh, when he was a young man, he decided that he wanted to race bikes, motorbikes. Well, that was fine. Mm-hmm. So uh, after a bit of negotiating and... Well, it actually sounded in the memoir or the book that you actually weren't that keen no, and I your wasn't. brother bought no, in no, the I book. No, I wasn't. I shouldn't have lent you the book. <laughs> You've read it very, very well. In, in fact, you're quite right Yeah. because I was a four-wheeled motorsport guy with roll cages and full harnesses and helmets and what have you. The thought of um, my our son, our, our beautiful boy, um, riding a dirt bike competitively or not initially didn't want to do it competitively initially he ultimately did that was horrendous Mm. Uh, you know so we're having nightmares of paraplegics and crashes and broken necks and what have you um but to his great credit um he remained undaunted and um pulled a trick that he did once or twice he went to his rich uncle Mm -hmm. older brother (laughs) who it was a bit of an adventure. So anyway, he got his he got his dirt he got bike. his dirt he bike. Got his I, dirt I, I, bike. You, what you didn't say in the book, which I was curious about, was were you angry at Fra- it's Frank, isn't it? Uh, no, that's the very oldest. Oh. Uh, that's because I got two brothers. Uh, yeah, right. Frank, Tom, yeah. Tom, Tom. Yeah. Were um, you cross at Tom no, for no, going? Not at all. Oh no, no not at no. all. No. And you know, grandparents and uncles. That's so what you got to do. You got to <laughs> spoil your kids. So, yeah. No, no, not at all. Not, yeah. not at all. I uh, make sure I give my grandchildren chocolate for breakfast just because I can. <laughs> That's yes. it. No. You've got it, and no. that's what rich uncles are for. Yeah, so, good. Uh, I thought, I thought Drew played a pretty good card there. So he got his motorbike, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I'm going to have to join him here because I'm not going to let him go riding by himself. So I bought myself a dirt bike. Mm-hmm. So now I'm rallying and riding dirt bikes, and that was all going famously. And then uh, after three or four years, so he's now sort of six, late teens. Mm-hmm. He decides that he's going to compete. Yep. In dirt bikes, right? Go racing. Uh, so that was another, uh, you know, he's going to fall off and break a neck and what have you. But again, went to his rich uncle and bought a Yamaha <laughs> <laughs> racing bike, a dirt bike, not, yeah. not tarmac. So so did I. So, yeah. Well, I might as well go in vets and at least be there. 
So now we're both racing and, you know, we're having the time of our life and things are going really, really quite well. And, you know, what I'm about to tell you really needs to put be put into perspective with us anguishing that he might hurt himself on a dirt bike. Yeah, I get that. So I came back from one of my many overseas trips because um, uh, I was um, doing a lot of overseas work at the time and noticed that he was a bit pale uh, and um, that led to some tests. Uh, and the long and the short of it, Melissa, is that uh, I had um, oof, I had the, uh, the very awful experience of sitting in front of a GP and having that GP say to the two of us, my 19-year-old son and I, that the scans had indicated a very, very advanced, unknown tumour of some description, mm. which, quote-unquote is likely to end up being terminal based on how advanced it was. Mm. So that was the day our lives got turned upside down. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, and yeah. did Drew, have, had he, in retrospect, did he, had he felt unwell or anything? Uh, not really. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the last two enduros, because uh, that's what we raced, mm-hmm. a, a race called enduro, which is forest racing on dirt bikes, he had complained of a, very sore lower back, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like, mate, you're, Tough racing, enough. you're racing dirt bikes. <laughs> like, you know, you get sore backs. Mm. But it was really when he was pale when I came back, and that's what triggered it. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was. Um, it went on. The, you know, the next seventeen months were just horrible. The first, mm-hmm. the first week was. I, I really, yeah, it was unspeakable. Really, because well, can never imagine how parents deal with that. Like, I just can't. Uh, and it was just horror. Like uh, he had to go in for urgent surgery, mm. exploratory surgery to find out what it was because the scans were just, it was like a Christmas tree, mm. uh, abdominal uh, Christmas tree just lit up. Um, and it was a testimony to the kid's toughness that he had been so functional for so long yeah. with so much pathology. It was just extraordinary. So in the exploratory surgery, um, we're waiting in his wardroom for him to come back from surgery and in walks the surgeon still in his uh, theater gear white white gym boots etc i remember it like yesterday and uh, uh what i'll never forget it was that he was he was bawling his eyes out the surgeon yeah yeah it's and terrible. these are case hardened people yeah exactly but yeah. there's some things you can't no nah. he you can, just said i mm. don't know i've never seen anything like it in my life i have no idea what it is Mm. Uh, all I can tell you is that you might have a week or two. Oh, God. And it was a really rare form of cancer, it was. wasn't it? Yep, DSRCT, desmoplastic small round cell abdominable tumour. That was only young men at the time, although I believe uh, um, that to now that uh, there are some recorded cases of young women as well. Right. Well, always young, always late teens, always fatal, always about 18 months. Mm-hmm. That was pretty well out. Drew was 17, 17 months. months. Yeah. Yeah. So he made it. Made it through to um, early 2001. So you and your wife both stopped working and looked after him, didn't you? We did. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm assuming, I know that that wouldn't have been a happy time for you, but it sounds like you tried to ride with him still and have the best time quality that you could with him. (laughs) We we did some crazy shit, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? Uh, we bought two road bikes yeah. because he was too weak to use his dirt bikes. Mm-hmm. Bought a couple of 600 R600s, R6s, 600 Yamahas. Uh, 
and um, yeah, we went riding. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he was on a high levels of morphine, I thought, well, probably the best way for me to cope with this was to take some of the, the morphine. morphine. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we know now both uh, riding our Yamahas. Hi. Hi, Sky. Excellent. Yeah, well, as you do. As you do. Yeah. Yeah. So we we crammed it in. I think at some level, Drew knew from day one. Because uh, he was a bright boy, he was in second year uni, start studying a double degree in physics and mech eng, mm-hmm. and absolutely mucking it in. You know, it was like a walk in the park for him. Bright kid, physically fit, strong boy, but I think he knew from day one. Um, and uh, yeah, look, um, I think the best way to summarise uh, that young man is uh, what I said in the eulogy: is that the two things that he never said ever. Um, he never ever said it's not fair mm-hmm. and he never ever said why me mm. he just accepted that he'd got dealt a very shit hand of cards mm-hmm. and decided that he would do what he could with a very shit hand and he did and he was uh, he was an extraordinarily brave man and never lost his sense of humour Mm. Joked with the silver chain nurses 24 hours before he finally died. Mm. He was joking. Wow. With the silver chain nurses. And they, uh, some of those nurses to this day will tell you that that was um, the time they spent with Drew was life changing for them as well. It was just. Uh, well, it's an absolute honour to look after people when they're dying, I think. Uh, you know? uh, absolutely. Uh, it was for us and it was mm. particularly an honour for someone. That showed the, um, the extraordinary bravery, um, mm. courage. Never said why me. Never said what you know. It's not fair. And I've said that in many, many after dinner speeches to a lot of people who uh, you know it's it's regrettable that we uh, even in times that aren't really adversity, mm-hmm. we tend to say this is not fair. Yeah. Well, why me? Well, it's not something that Trish and I really cope with very well. No, it must be really <laughs> you need annoying. to be in a pretty bad place for us to accept that. <laughs> a couple of years ago I um, went to visit a very good friend of mine who was dying and she, she died the next day and she was we were having a chat that day and she said something to me that, you know, I was always complaining about, God, I'm getting old and my knee's hurting or whatever. And she said to me, if I'm up wherever I'm bloody going and I hear you complaining about a wrinkle or anything... Yep. I'm going to be really pissed off at you. <laughs> well, there you go. And, uh, and she was like, because every time you say, I don't want to get old, the alternative... Yep, is, is worse. ...is way worse. Yep. And I think of that every time. Yep. And every time I hear someone say that, yep. I think of her. Yep. And it must be the same for you when you uh, hear uh, people is. complaining about uh, fairness. It absolutely is. It is. I mean, here was a kid that made it to 20 and wanted mm. nothing more than live and here I am... At, already achieved three times his age Mm. and I just don't take lightly to people that don't embrace the joy of and the privilege of life. Mm. Um, It's there to be lived, it's there to embrace and it's there to, you know, that's not to say there's not ups and downs, of course there is. Uh, But it is the mental predisposition to say this is is an honour and a privilege to be breathing. Mm. So really Drew taught you... Yes. About climbing out of black holes, yes. didn't he? Because uh, he was certainly the biggest lesson mm. 
mm. Melissa. I, I think there was the ones before that we talked about, um, you know, being mummified every night because of your eczema uh, yeah. and being tied to your cot yeah. because you tore yourself apart. Um, they were tough times as well but nothing in comparison to uh, spending 17 months watching your son die a slow and horrible, mm. painful death. Um, yeah, that – Trish and I use the word calibration. That calibrated us. Yeah. Um, and so we now embrace every minute and I'm very pleased to say so to our daughters, yeah. our sons-in-law, both of whom wish that they knew Drew. Yeah. Uh, and the six grandchildren are now starting to develop that same that same uh, philosophy of embracing the joy and and uh, the beauty of the privilege of being alive. Mm, it's yeah. amazing. So after Drew p- died, you yep. went off, threw yourself into your career, did. didn't you? I did. And you did all sorts of exciting <laughs> things and Tel Aviv. And I now, did. I, just briefly, touch on what that was to do with. So that was to do with some infrared thing yes. to stop. Indeed, we. Uh, um, most uh, Aussies would know that we went through a period where – I'm sorry, Melissa. We went through a period where um, we were getting a lot of our fishing industry um, uh, was being um, – uh, Pilfered. Pilfered. That's a lovely <laughs> word. Beautiful. Pilfered by our northern neighbours. Yeah. And it was very, very expensive for the military services to, to patrol that. Yeah. So the government very cleverly uh, established a civil contract – using aeroplanes, lots mm-hmm. of aeroplanes, to uh, do those patrols. Yeah. They had no intervention capability. They were simply surveillance patrols. Mm-hmm. And if there was intervention required, then that was a military issue. But w- we were the surveillance contractor. And um, at about the time that I joined the company that already had that contract, they re- there was a renewal call, which was way, way higher technology and right in my field. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got that job uh, to uh, respond to the tender. Uh, and then I got the job when once we had won to then develop those aircraft and it turned out that the people that were best at this were the Israelis. Right. And at that time, and I think still to, to some extent, um, the relationship between Australia and Israel was very positive, particularly commercially. Um, so uh, we were very welcome. The Australian – a contractor for the Australian government was very welcome and I spent a lot of time – uh, in Tel Aviv, in, in Israel, at about the time of uh, Gulf War One, in fact. Yeah, so that would have been a kind of... It's pretty exciting. Yeah, and pretty scary. I was thinking about was. just flying there would be pretty scary. Oh, well, in the end, uh, I think I was one of the last flights out before the Scud started landing wow. in Tel Aviv and that we could only get there via Swiss Air through Zurich mm-hmm. for security reasons. And, uh, yes, I've been on... Um, I've been in departure lounges with... Uh, Israeli Secret Service with uh, Uzis over their shoulders and mm. Swiss Air with uh, the bus that we used to get from the departure lounge to the aircraft, which was kind of hidden away in the, in the very back corners of the – for security reasons. Um, we were got escorted with um, military vehicles with with um, very large calibre weapons on them. So that was all pretty exciting. Scary. So, yeah. you know, I think it sounded to me when I read the book that you focused on your career a lot would have helped with the grief. And then also at home you and Trish did some pretty amazing stuff. You opened your house up and called it the house of fun we, to we, Drew's mates. We, we did. We did. It, it was a heady time because um, a lot of Drew's high school mates went on to uni with him and so 
it was a, an extraordinary group of friends called The Boys mm-hmm. and, and later their girlfriends as well, of course. And um, Trish and I recognised that along with our daughters, they were going through some terrible time to have your best mate, mm. your mate die in those sort of circumstances. So we opened up the house. It was good for us. It was good for them. I think the neighbours got a bit weary of it <laughs> after. Because <laughs> you were uh, having parties. Oh, party, party, party. Three times a week. Mm. You know, I don't know how my liver survived. I don't know. It was, it was, they were, but they were very therapeutic and uh, I don't know that we would have got through those first two or three years without the house of fun, mm. without the lads who occasionally, by the way, call me up and. We Have get, a chat? Yeah, we get together. No, I mean we, as a group. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, they come down to the southwest and we get together as a group and it's a bit quieter these days but mm-hmm. we still uh, reminisce. And, and when you see Drew's mates now, does it make you feel happy or do you feel sad about the fact that they've got families and wives and all the things that he could have been doing or do you feel happy that – or both? Uh, um, uh, yeah, both. <laughs> no, uh, m- p- predominantly joy. Yeah. Seriously, predominantly joy. We – after the first few years, which, um, you know, if, you, if I, I could hear his voice, I could see him, I, I could watch him down the stairs. Uh, mm. It was just awful. The first few years, were, were, there were many, many times when I, it was so painful that I would literally fall to my knees. I would mm. collapse, physically collapse. Mm. But after a while, um, you know, I think I read a book once, I think it was uh, Professor Livingston who'd lost both his sons and he said, you know, uh, instead of collapsing every minute, after a while you collapse every hour, and then mm. after a while you collapse every day, and then after a while you collapse every month, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we went through all that, and now on his birthday and his death day, when the two girls join us with the sons-in-law and the grandies, we have a party. Yeah, we laugh and and look at photos and 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 laugh. So uh, when uh, you know we have some of. Drew's mates bring their kids around. Yeah, it's lovely. And that's lovely. No, there's mm. never any bitterness, there's never any resentfulness, quite the contrary. There's joy mm-hmm. that, um, you know, as, as shit as it was for Drew, obviously, mm. um, the fact is that uh, we look at rejoicing in in life and it's yeah. really part of the whole deal. You embrace yeah. the fact that, uh, yeah, he, he had a lot of bad luck. We had bad luck. It was awful. It was mm. bloody horrible. But. You've got to make a decision very quickly whether you're going to let that get the better of you or whether you're going to rise above it and use it to learn, to calibrate. That's my favourite. Trisha, my favourite. Calibrate. 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 You know, so if you're worried about the fact that coals ran out of your cut of meat and you get all annoyed about it, you calibrate and say, well... How important is it? It's a first really? world problem. It is a serious first world problem, yeah, mm. exactly. So uh, we the, every day of our life we so live like that. A few years later, or well, mm. I think it was like eight or so years later, you had… I crashed. You crashed <laughs> and you had a really terrible time, didn't you, of panic attacks. Yep. And, yep. and do you think it was something in, that actually triggered that or do you think it was just this having Drew die then go, 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 going so hard all those years, working and partying and trying to keep it all together? It's a a good question, Melissa, and it wouldn't surprise you to know that I've been asked that a few times. I'm assuming, yes. Uh, What's the trigger? And uh, my answer is uh, a two-word answer, my life. Mm. Uh, Of course, the burying myself in the work um, 
uh, and in, including that because that was um, I'd now moved on from the um, the coastal surveillance and, and I was now um, working with a very tiny technology company in in Dunsborough and we were travelling the world selling um, intellectual property mm-hmm. uh, automotive intellectual property and I buried myself in that I really really did I I, I travelled crazy amounts of travel I've lost count of how many times I travelled to Japan and I think that was all part of some form of crazy grieving mm-hmm. um, process. So of course Drew's death was a major catalyst to the breakdown but I think it's just also in my nature that I am a bit boom bust. Hyperactive. Roll- yeah, roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> million miles of Trish. Mm. Trish reckons that I start going hard once the needle comes off empty and I really should wait until there's a bit more fuel in the tank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we crashed. 06 uh, and it was a, in, in some respects now in hindsight it was a wonderful time because uh, Trish was in Perth uh, and the daughters were still in Perth because you know, I was studying and uh, um, Lisa, one of my daughter, Lisa, her boyfriend needed somewhere to live. He was studying winemaking down here so he moved in mm-hmm. to my house because we were in Dunsbury and we commuted every weekend. Yeah. And uh, it was 06 that I first really started to get sick, very, yeah. very sick. I didn't know what was going on uh, and had it not been for the fact that I was living with Matt who's just an adorable, well, He was obviously a rock for you at that I time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Bachelor Boys we called ourselves <laughs> in those days. And uh, he was he saw the worst of it you know, until I got diagnosed with, uh, with anxiety, with panic. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were many, many times in the middle of the night where Matt would come and grab my phone because I was about to dial triple zero to call an ambulance because I was about to die. Mm. That's how um, severe the panic was and we I just had no idea what was going on. I didn't know anything about panic. breakdowns and panic and um, unfortunately I um, the same GP that uh, broke the news to us many years earlier um, about Drew's cancer, that same GP... I took the trouble to hop in my car and drive all the way. To, I have no idea how I drove there. Mm. I have no recollection of the drive itself. And I went and saw that same GP and he kind of grinned, kind of gave me a bit of a hug, beautiful man, and uh, said, you've got severe anxiety. You need help urgently. Mm-hmm. So here we go again, Melissa, <laughs> digging out of another black <laughs> another hole. Black hole. Yeah, so that took three years. And that was – so did you work during that time or did you have time uh, off? I kind of kept working as best I could uh, and one of the catalysts uh, which made it quite significantly worse is that this beautiful um, technology company that uh, I had worked so hard you know, after Drew passed away, I'd worked so hard to build it up and we had done – global deals with none other than Toyota mm. Motor Company and McLaren Formula One and Citroen Motorsport for World Rally Champion. We'd won World Rally Championships. Mm. We'd won Dakar, you know. Yeah. Suddenly I'm in Africa, wow. you know, um, and then I'm in Lyon doing mm. testing with Citroen Motorsport mm. and then I'm in in Japan testing with Toyota. And it was just extraordinary. Um, so heady, lots of highs. Lots of highs, heady stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and this gorgeous just I call it I, from the Greek mythology. I call it Daphne. Mm-hmm. Our little company. It was just this gorgeous thing, 
Uh, and then, of course, uh, what also happened in 06 was the GFC. Mm. Of course, by then we were owned by the Americans. We, um, uh, we had sold out and the inventor, the guy who had invented the idea, uh, retired and I went on to run the company. But the GFC hit and, of course, then the Yanks um, decided that they were going to get their tentacles into our little um, they were going to run their company. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Which, of course, they were perfectly <laughs> entitled to do since they owned it. I am it. thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and Melissa, I can, <laughs> I can tell that you're thinking that. They were perfectly entitled to. They were, mm. after all, the owners. Yeah. But uh, not me, mate. Nah, they weren't going to touch our baby. So I, um, every time they tried to get their tentacles into our company, I'd get the sickle out and slash and burn mm. and fight and that put me over the edge. Yeah. That took me out. Yeah. Simple as that. So that was the next three years were – so I kind of kept working a little bit and here and there, but it was ugly. Yeah. It was adversarial, was angry. Um, I think the best way to summarise the three years that followed, so 06, 07, 08, is that Trish and the two girls, both my daughters, um, have told me since, they didn't tell me at the time obviously, that they had – agreed amongst themselves that they'd lost their dad for forever, that mm. he wasn't coming back. Mm, sad. But um, with family uh, and an extraordinary uh, psychologist um, who uh, just never gave up. And an amazing GP. That's when you met the GP you have now, isn't Indeed. it? And she sounds just so amazing. Well, and have been very lucky. Actually, something that really struck me when I was reading the book, I thought... I really wanted to like f- say that, that I think every person, in particular men, need to find themselves a GP that they have a good relationship with. Like the importance of that relationship is just it, so… It's, li- it's life-saving. Yeah. It is. I learned the value of GPs uh, and I can't speak highly enough of general practitioners. Mm. Um, I learned their value during the Drew years when we, I think my… Excel spreadsheet had 27 service providers Mm -hmm. and you very quickly learn that the specialists don't necessarily see it important to keep their GP informed Mm. and in somewhat of a uh, reformation process, we we bucked against that and said, no, 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 the the centre, I I called it the hub of the wheel. Yeah, and I think they are. The specialists are the spokes and you need them and they're very, very important but we've got to keep developing this model and I hope the AMA is listening <laughs> that GPs have to be the hub of that. They've got to coordinate it. They're the ones that have got the holistic care and love. Yeah. Um, and I think also I think GPs are just so undervalued in the medical profession are. because are. I think also, you know, you turn up and you can go to some super clinic where there's 20 GPs, you see a different one every time. Oh. They're not going to recognise that you're feeling down or… Melissa, don't get me started because… Uh, yeah, no, that's a whole new story. The race to the bottom is what I call it yeah. at the moment for GPs. Mm. You know, if we don't bulk bill, we're a bad GP. Yeah. Um, and so now instead of 15 minutes, it's 10 minutes, it's 8 minutes, it's 7 minutes. You know, I mean, it's just crazy race to the bottom and mm. we've got to stop that. Yeah. How do we get onto this social? Don't know, sorry, but yes. <laughs> I so just... I have got a very, very good GP and I encourage all blokes. Yeah. In my case, uh, just because of the sort of bloke that I am, I find it a lot easier to be vulnerable with uh, women. So yep. my physiotherapist, my GP, you, um, it's just easier for me to be vulnerable. And I think that's in itself a statement of the great Aussie male. Yeah. Um, 
that um, we've got we've got to get better at being vulnerable and opening up and um, exposing ourselves, as it were, at least our soul, anyway. Yeah, I agree, and I just I think being comfortable with your main health provider is just so important, and also they'll notice changes in you, and you know if you have a, that relationship. So three years it took you to climb out of that hole. Yep, and then. I can't remember what happened next. Did you go back to work then? You went into a different area then, didn't you? Or yeah. was that when you retired? Uh, that was kind of, yeah, when I retired. I, I did continue to dabble. So uh, I, um, I've been very, very fortunate, Melissa, in that um, financially because we've never really um, we've never really wanted for material things too much. We've been mm-hmm. comfortable, don't get me mm. wrong. But we've never really wanted too many Porsches in the driveway. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I don't think I've ever had a Porsche in the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a second-hand D-Max. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, we, uh, we're we very, very fortunate um, that with the opportunities I'd had with uh, the coastal surveillance and then the, um, the intellectual property work with the automotive suspension that I, at 53... When uh, when Kinetic all turned to worms in the GFC, I spent a few months looking for jobs and that was when I found out that at 53 it didn't really matter how good your CV were, no one wanted to know you. Right. Just, and so uh, at the end of that short process I went, well, stuff this. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to work. So mm. I didn't. Good. Stopped. Um, Trisha keep working. She's, she's a school teacher, as is half my family. Um she kept working and we were okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, to to compress a lot of things happening, we ended up with both the girls in the southwest as well. So uh, we're southwest people and all our grandies are down here. So we've got both families are down here. So it's just wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. And we live in comfortable but modest circumstances. So I pulled the pin. Yep. I still do dabble in intellectual property. Um, it's just a wonderful thing that with the extraordinary success of the suspension technology, mm-hmm. uh, I came to be known by inventors. Ah, uh, so that's what you inventors do. Inventors are extraordinary people. They, I, generally my first question is what planet do they come from because <laughs> they're not earthlings. I've yet to find an inventor that was born on Earth. Most of them are from Gallifrey where Doctor Who comes from. <laughs> um, so they approach me from time to time and right at the moment I've got two or three Great. Inventors. Yeah. And I don't – I just charge enough to buy my next mountain bike. I, ne- I never yeah. – re- it's not a commercial thing for me. Uh, I mean obviously they pay me and it's, it's, it's nice pocket money or mountain bike money as I call mm-hmm. it. Um, but it also keeps me very active intellectually to be yeah. dealing in intellectual property and helping inventors get their dream mm. uh, into the world – Assuming the invention is good enough, of course, which yeah. is what my first assessment is, is, is it going to make it into the world? Uh, so that keeps me busy. But essentially I've been a community – the work that I've done has been family and community for yeah. the last uh, – what am I about to turn 66? So 53, 13 years for the last 13 odd years. So tell us about – now when the men listening to this listen to what your community <laughs> project is, they're going to be extremely jealous <laughs> because, yes, all you guys listening out there, you need to retire and follow yep. in Andy's footsteps yes. because he has the best community volunteer. No Meals on Wheels for oldies for him. No, to this. no, it's not. And, in fact, it's, it's, it is important uh, part of the story because it will also link in – 
your introduction, Melissa, which was the fact that uh, last year in the middle of COVID, I did uh, get diagnosed with prostate cancer and I had radical prostate surgery uh, using Da Vinci the robot, mm-hmm. the beautiful machine that, yep. that is. Oh, I think I'm the only patient so far when I got wheeled in to say, stop everyone, I want a guided tour of this robot. <laughs> so before the anaesthetist did his thing, um, my, my um, urologist, Justin, said, sure, we'll give you a guided tour. So <laughs> he, he showed me way. Da Vinci. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, the reason why uh, I just brought that up now is because what I do in the community is mountain bike coaching. Yes. Um, I managed to get a certification from the best, what I believe to be the best organisation in the world, the, the uh, Canadians, mm-hmm. Professional Mountain Bike Instructors Association. They happen to be in Australia and I got an endorsement, so I'm a certified mountain bike coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started off uh, up at the local primary school um, helping out coaching kids and then once or twice I got approached by mums mm-hmm. saying, do you do grown-ups? And I went... Mm, yeah, okay. So it ended up being kids after school and mums um, between drop-off and pick-up. And what started off as one or two mums wanting to learn how to ride their bike primarily so that they could ride with their kids. Yeah. Because it doesn't take long for kids to be able to outride their parents on a no, mountain bike. Not right. long at all. Yeah. Generally by the time they're about seven or eight, if they're any good, they're going to leave their mum and dad behind unless they themselves are mountain bikers. Yeah. And that just went uh, went gangbusters. So, you know, like I think so far I would have coached from nervous green level, as we call it, to very proficient, very proficient blue level um, highly capable mountain bikers. I would have t- coached, I don't know, 50, 60 mums. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I was saying about the jealousy. It's all these yummy mummies yeah, in there. Yeah, someone's got to do it, Melissa. In their Lorna Jane <laughs> pants and you're just following along behind up you, that hill. Are you trying to get me into trouble with Trish because you're doing a mighty fine job of it? Sorry, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, someone's got to do it. I'm mate. just trying to make all those other guys out there jealous oh. about, about your job. You've got to have – I mean, every woman I know thinks I've got the best job in the whole world. Every guy you know must think you have. How do you do it? <laughs> but I should, I should emphasise, Melissa, that it is a community service. I don't charge for this. No, which is fantastic. I, I just – it's something that – and, you know, it keeps me extremely fit and that's the message for the for the blokes. Um, yes, I did do very well post-surgery. Fingers crossed. I mean, I know that we're still waiting for the quarterly PSA but, you know, we're confident that's going to be fine. But in terms of functionality, mm-hmm. um, um, particularly continence, um, I think it was you that – uh, used the phrase, Melissa, that I think you're breaking some records. Mm. Um, and that was about um, my, I guess, my um, fitness before diagnosis. Definitely. And then, uh, and guys, listen to this, please, um, the effort and pers- and, and just the, 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 yeah, the sheer perseverance I put in between um, – between diagnosis and surgery. On your pelvic floor. Yeah. Definitely. Crucial. Yeah. And if I could also say that I had and, – and um, Joe was the first physio that I went to and she then briefed my local physio, who's a very, very dedicated young lady, and she uh, took it upon herself to help me with that prep. So I was getting um, very good feedback pretty well every second or third session of mm-hmm. pelvic exercises. 
uh, or every second or third day, I should say, because I'm doing pelvic exercises five times. <laughs> Still? Uh, uh, not so much now because, um, and I hope this um, is seen as a positive comment mm. by the blokes that are listening, I managed to get back to normal within days. Mm-hmm. So once that catheter was out, um, I think, I only ever wore one pad for one day. Wow. So I'm just going to be Joe here and I'm yes. going to put my Joe hat on and I'm going to say you need to keep doing them, Andy, for the rest of your life. Yes, or Joe. Okay. it's going to come back okay. and it's going to be drippy. <laughs> Don't want that to happen. <laughs> no. Do not want to. Do not want to. Okay. Okay. I, Trish will, uh, she, she will tell you that she just about went mad because I used to do my exercise, five times a day this is, right. my exercises standing at the kitchen cupboard looking at the clock. And she'd just see my face sort of suddenly focus on doing the exercise. And she couldn't get a spoon out of the bloody drawer because you were standing right in front of it. Indeed. Oh, I can imagine. Five times a day, I feel a, crazy. I feel annoyed just thinking about that. <laughs> but uh, on the serious side, uh, that discipline in that, and, and in my case it was a very short time frame mm. because Justin could fit me in very quickly and it was a pretty, um, pretty nasty mm. um, biopsy. Uh, it was only five weeks. Yeah, it so was quick. So you didn't have a lot of lead up, no, did you? No. So this is this is. 14, now can we just yeah, go? Sorry, can we just brush on? Yeah. I don't want to talk about this in too much detail, but just so that every man out there isn't jealous, thinking that everything's <laughs> been perfect for you. You're doing great now, but you're nearly you're nine months, ten months post op now, aren't you? Ten months, yeah. Yeah, and we're on an upward trend with number three of the hat trick, the erections. Yep. Not quite there, but getting close. And you've really, you've actually been really, you've had a, showed a lot of stickability in that too. You've done all your homework and things are on the improve. Uh, indeed, um, Melissa, they are. Um, and uh, I, I hope that the message that I can, and I don't, I don't want to, for heaven's sake, I don't want to brag or boast or anything like that. I'm not a record breaker, but I am pretty perseverant sort of mm, guy. Very. And um, look, uh, I'll uh, I'll tell you the number. You know the number, Melissa, because you supply the uh, you supply the mix. I'm on my f- this week will be my 44th injection. Yeah. They're not a lot of fun initially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I tell uh, tell my friends that I stick a needle in uh, to my penis. Um, Regularly, they sort of go, "Wow, how on earth do you do that?" And initially, it's 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 tough going. You know, you take a deep breath and you think, "Am I really going to press this button on this injectees and fire this needle in?" And you do. And um, the encouragement I can give blokes, hopefully, is that uh, uh, it ha- it does work. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, forty plus injections in, and there is a significant hope. Uh, I'm about to turn sixty six. And uh, Trish and I are going to. Um, I don't think there's any doubt now that we're going to go back to pre-op performance. Function. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And I just think that you know the message in that is it's taken a while, but yep. you've got there, and it is really is about perseverance. And there were setbacks, as you well know, Melissa, because uh, I see you quite regularly for feedback and encouragement. And there were times when we didn't know where this was going to go, and mm-hmm. we couldn't. Took us a while to get the the. Uh, the mix right and the units right and the dosage and what have you. Um, so, no, it hasn't been beer and Skittles by any means. Yeah. But uh, here we are, uh, not quite a year post-surgery and... Um, You're almost back to good. Looking good. So, just to round up, like, so as I said at the very beginning, you know, I just think that 
everybody has adversity in life. Yep. And it's really how we deal with our adversity about how successful our life is and we only get one life to live. And so what I think that I've seen in you, and correct me if I'm wrong, the things that have really helped you in life is you have an amazing partner. Indeed. You have really good friends. Yes. And you've really nurtured special friendships, I yes. think. And you have a great GP who you have a good, open, honest relationship with and a physiotherapist. You've surrounded yourself with a yep. team of people who can help you. And most of all, you admit when things aren't going good and you're happy to be vulnerable. Yep. Is that right? I, I think I think that encapsulates it very nicely, Melissa. I've, I've, never, I've never really shied from... Um, exposing my soul to people and uh, in most cases not all uh, people respond well mm-hmm. uh, sometimes and I'm sure I'm not alone in this other people might take advantage of that mm-hmm. but fortunately uh, they tend to be in the minority and uh, that hurt that that causes isn't going to dissuade me from being me I will continue to be vulnerable I'll continue to let people see my soul and see my heart and let them decide uh, what they do with that. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of got me out of my black holes and um, I think in the last page of the book or the very last comment I uh, make the comment that I'm going to stay on this roller coaster. I'm, I'm not going to quit um, while my body and mind hold out. I'm just going to keep doing it and keep embracing every minute. And if you think about that really, Melissa, wouldn't it be a terrible travesty that if your own son only managed to get 20 years of life and a great life that he had, wouldn't it be a terrible travesty to not embrace every last breath Definitely. you've got? And I, I, I didn't say it a few minutes ago when we were talking about Drew, but Silver Chain passed me their stethoscope when they knew it was close. And I listened to my son's very last heartbeat and I ain't going to quit, Melissa. I'm not going to stop doing, I'm not going to stop hurting, I'm not going to stop the joy of the roller coaster. Uh, Zorba the Greek embraced life so much that he died standing up in the doorway and he's one of my many heroes. I want to die standing up screaming in protest. Or driving, riding down a or hill. Or riding down a hill, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Following a yummy, preferably. <laughs> a yummy, for anyone who doesn't know, is a yummy mummy on a bike. <laughs> so in conclusion, I want to read this one thing that you said at Please. the very end of your book, which is, I said by Andy, I'm going to strive to reach his level, Drew's level, of greatness in the full knowledge that I don't have a chance of even coming close. And I just think that really sums it all up. And I really appreciate you sharing your soul and hopefully people have take something away from this. And Melissa, thank you for being part of that journey. Um, you've been a huge huge contribution to how well we've done in the last year or so and looking forward to um, many more years of recovery and um, joy and doing stuff great thank you Melissa thank you so much Andy see you later bye as I'm growing old now he's getting harder to see more and more I long for that life hi this is Dr Joey Thank you so much for listening to our program today and we're pleased to let you know 
that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback, and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review. And this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Boys on their bikes Shooting stones at each other through the trees We tried to deny The going down of the sun We're just having too much fun